You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, listeners. There will unfortunately be a one-week delay before the next full-length episode. The good news is that not all of my classes ended up being canceled this semester, leaving me with a significantly reduced income but not entirely unemployed. Nevertheless, with my classes starting Monday the 11th, I was just too deep in the weeds building out canvas shells and making video lectures to get my next script written and recorded. I have the research and an outline in the bag, but at the time that I'm recording this, I only have the cold open written. If you're starved for content, though, I did have the time to write and record a patron-exclusive minisode that's available on Patreon now. It's an apocryphal catechism episode, in which I look at the mysterious authorship of some peculiar non-canonical works that will be relevant in the upcoming full-length episode. So head over to patreon.com slash historicalblindness and pledge even just a buck a month to get ad-free episodes and more than 30 exclusive minisodes, usually around 10 minutes each, for a whopping 5 hours of exclusive content and counting. Typically, the minisodes cover an element of the topic I'm currently discussing, or just got done discussing, or it's something that is thematically linked to the last episode. In fact, often they bridge the gulf between installments in a series. Head over to Patreon, pledge some support, and check it out. To give you an idea of the content I produce for patrons and the -the behind-the-scenes updates I give in them about what's going on with me and the show, what follows is an exclusive from last year around this time about Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. In the last episode on Hermes Trismegistus, I mentioned Caesar's possible burning of the Library of Alexandria, and this minisode gives further context to that conflict while examining the mystery of Caesar's son. As a disclaimer, I am aware that I misspeak in this minisode when saying who was responsible for the fire that may have burned the library, but the last episode corrected that. So, please enjoy Little Caesar Lost. Hi, patrons. Happy New Year. Sorry you haven't heard from me for a few weeks. After I released my Christmas bonus, I was in the middle of moving everything I and my family own to a new house. And to complicate matters, I came down with a case of shingles during the process. And afterward, right around New Year's Eve, as I completed the move despite the pain of the shingles, I got myself a nasty little head cold that became a stubborn chest cold. I've only just recovered enough to record and only recently gotten a little recording area set up among the unpacked boxes. Add to that the fact that I'm starting a new semester and you get an accurate picture of what's holding up my return to a regular podcast release schedule. But there's another issue that's been confounding me. Every time I think of a topic I want to cover in one of these exclusive blindsides, I start researching and realize that it's really a topic worthy of a full-length episode. So I set aside the research materials I have for it, and I go looking for something a bit more manageable in the short form. As a result, I have something of a series planned. For the first several episodes this season, I'll be exploring some mysterious deaths in royal families. Think back to my series on the Princes in the Tower, or my blind spot on the Lost Dauphin, to get a sense of the kind of episodes I'm planning. 
There are at least four mysteries I'm planning to explore in this rich vein, and I'm unsure whether I'll do them one after another or elect to produce episodes on other topics in between. As an indication that an episode is part of this series, I'll add a parenthetical to the title. It will be, quote, a royal blood mystery, end quote. In fact, I may go back in my catalog and add that parenthetical to the aforementioned episodes that also fit in it. But still, I have the problem of finding related topics of the appropriate scope for these bonus exclusives. I've come to the conclusion that pretty much every strong topic I've covered on this show is complex enough to be the topic of a sizable book, and most are. Therefore, I must simply choose one to present in broader strokes. For this, our first episode of 2020, a blindside and royal blood mystery that I'll call Little Caesar Lost, I've chosen to go back into antiquity to a mystery surrounding not only the paternity of a royal figure with claims to power in both Egypt and Rome, but also the secret of his final end. For the story of Little Caesar, we must give context by looking at the life and times of his mother, Cleopatra, which of course is why this topic could easily sprawl to comprise one or even more full episodes. I will attempt here to do her story justice only in outline. Cleopatra VII, Thea Philopator, in her own time and in memory and history, has been depicted variously as a temptress, a manipulator, a power-hungry schemer, as a victim of circumstance, a pawn of patriarchal machinations, or as a feminist icon. Cleopatra's family, the Ptolemaic dynasty, were not even Egyptian, but rather Macedonian Greek, descended from a general of Alexander the Great, and their reign over Egypt was chaotic and full of unrest, for it is said they bore little respect for their subjects, never even bothering to learn their language. Some claim that Cleopatra thirsted for power from a young age, but it may be just as accurate to argue that she was raised to rule by her father, who made her a co-regent at just 14 years old. At 18, when her father died, she and her brother, Ptolemy XIII, married and ruled together. Such was common practice in ancient Egypt. In fact, Cleopatra herself was the product of incest. The fact that she had ruled for four years prior to her marriage, along with the fact that her brother was only ten years old, with a eunuch servant named Pothinus serving as regent on his behalf, meant that despite her nominal status, the real power was in Cleopatra's hands. Indeed, with Cleopatra's name alone appearing on official documents, and only her likeness appearing on coins, she had attained a position of such primacy that her brother, perhaps encouraged by the conniving of his advisor Pothinus, moved against her, forcing her to flee to Syria. Cleopatra was better liked than her brother, though, for she would be the only member of her family to ever learn the language of her subjects. Therefore, she was able to raise her own army and return to Egypt to wage a civil war against her husband and brother.
It was amidst this turmoil that the defeated Roman general Pompey arrived in Egypt, and Ptolemy XIII had him executed in hopes of winning favor with the victorious Julius Caesar, who arrived soon afterward looking for Pompey. But instead, when Ptolemy presented Pompey's severed head, Caesar reacted with disgust and outrage, demanding that his enemy's body be turned over for a proper burial. During this drama, Cleopatra managed to gain an audience with Julius Caesar as well. Legend has it she accomplished this by having herself delivered to his room rolled up in a rug. Where her brother had failed, she succeeded, gaining Caesar's favor and even becoming his lover. Having the eunuch schemer Pothinus killed and deposing Ptolemy XIII, Caesar helped return her to the throne which this time she shared as co-regent with her youngest brother, Ptolemy XIV, whom again she married, though she continued her relationship with Caesar. Ptolemy XIII and his allies retaliated by laying siege to Alexandria and burning the famous library there. But they were finally defeated in the Battle of the Nile by Cleopatra and Julius Caesar's combined forces. Later that year, Cleopatra bore a son, whom she named Caesarion, or Little Caesar. She let it be known that he was Julius Caesar's son, and not the fruit of her marriage to her 12-year-old brother. This was significant, as Caesar's wife Calpurnia in Rome had never borne him a son. There has been some question, then and ever since, about whether Caesarion was indeed Julius Caesar's son but it is telling that he never appears to have denied paternity of the child. Rather, he actually married Cleopatra, which he could do despite their marriages to others because polygamy was legal in Egypt, though the marriage would not be legal in Rome. But more than that, Caesar actually brought Cleopatra and the child to Rome and had statues of her erected. While some may have thought it improper or indecent, most were taken with Cleopatra's charm and beauty. She even became something of a fashion icon, her hairstyle in particular becoming quite popular among Roman women. Cleopatra and Caesarion were in Rome when Julius Caesar was famously betrayed and murdered. And in the resulting vacuum of power, the coalition of the Second Triumvirate was forged among the generals and allies of Caesar, Mark Antony and Marcus Lepidus, and Caesar's nephew Gaius Octavius, whom Caesar had named his heir. While the Triumvirate took military control of the empire, Cleopatra and her little Caesar returned to Egypt, and thereafter, upon the untimely death of her little brother and co-regent, whom it was said she had poisoned, she installed her son as co-regent. She would go on to have another long-standing affair with another married Roman leader, the triumvir Mark Antony, who ended up living with Cleopatra in Alexandria as the triumvirate fell apart. Mark Antony incited war with Caesar's heir Octavius through his subsequent maneuvering. He made declarations called the Donations of Alexandria that carved out portions of the empire and gave them to the children he had fathered with Cleopatra, and to Caesarion, the little Caesar, whom he asserted held a better claim to being Julius Caesar's heir than did Octavius. 
By the time Antony and Cleopatra's war with Octavius concluded with their defeat, Caesarion was a young man of 17 years old. When Octavius captured Alexandria and annexed Egypt, Antony and Cleopatra met their end. The legend has it they took their own lives, he by falling upon his sword, and she either by taking poison or, more sensationally, by letting a poisonous snake bite her. Though there is the further possibility that they did not kill themselves at all, but rather were executed by Octavius. Even less certain is the fate of little Caesar. Some accounts assert that his mother sent him into exile in India until such time as he might return and take back his throne. Among those accounts, there is the version that he was tempted back by Octavius on the promise of having his kingdom restored, but was strangled upon his return. The story goes that Octavius undertook the murder of young Caesarion because his advisors cautioned him that it would not do to have, quote, too many Caesars, end quote. But, of course, these accounts from ancient historians such as Plutarch have been challenged. Perhaps they represent what Octavius wanted the public to believe, rather than what really happened. Perhaps Caesarion was not murdered in Alexandria. Perhaps he never returned from exile. Indeed, little Caesar's royal blood may not have even been spilled at all. you enjoyed this little blindside, patrons, and I hope it whets your appetite for more political intrigue and royal murder mysteries. While the mystery of this story may in large part be owed to the fact that the events occurred in the very distant past, that is not the case for all the stories I plan to share in the coming episodes. We shall find that being born into royalty means being born into danger and that even when the eyes of the world are constantly upon you, secret deeds may still be done, and the end of your story may still remain unknown. <laughs>